Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the words of sacred scripture in order to better understand it through the light of the tradition, but also to help us in our prayer life. Now, of course, we love having you be part of the show by adding your questions and comments. And you can do that in a few ways. You can come here to our studios, like these nice people have done, or you can call during the live program, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you are in North America, the number you can call is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are not in North America, you can still call, but not on that number. So you can call country code one area code 205-271-2980. So 1-205-271-2980. Third way is you can send us questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we're going to take a look at the interaction between Jesus and his disciples after the death of John the Baptist when they return to him from their first mission. And we'll take a look at how Jesus reminds them that the message they have to deliver will not be well received by everyone, but that he will sustain them through any of the difficulties. And that's very important and pretty relevant to us today. Now, we are still going through my book, which is called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. You can still get that at EWTNRC.com, where's item number 52885. This is, we'll have the notes, the Bible passages, and reflection questions there to help you to pray through some of this material. So, we are now back in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30 to 31. This is when the apostles finish their mission. Remember, at the be before the story of John the Baptist's martyrdom, our Lord had sent the apostles out on mission. Then we heard the story of John being martyred, and as I mentioned last week, this happened at Herod's palace in Makawar in modern Jordan. Uh, was called Makarus in ancient times, but now Makawar in Arabic. You can still go there and see the place, in fact. Um, now the apostles return, and it says, the apostles, in verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Now, 
something I mentioned at the very beginning of talking about Mark chapter 6 is that St. Mark likes to use a sandwich technique. I mentioned it a few times. It's really useful to understand this method of telling the stories of the life of Christ because the two ends of the sandwich, the sort of the two slices of bread, and what's in between are to interpret each other. So we saw the apostles go out on mission, death of John the Baptist, now they return for mission. That's, that's how this is a, a way to include everything together and see that the death of John will help to interpret the meaning of the mission of the apostles. That's what's going on here, okay? And uh, this is uh, very typical of St. Uh, Mark. Uh, it's in the other Gospels too, but Mark is truly the master of this technique. Uh, you see it with, for instance, the raising of the daughter of Jairus, and in between that, when they call for Christ and then he does the healing, there's the uh, healing of the woman with the hemorrhage and lots of other episodes. Now, of course, one of the things that uh, they do is tell Jesus all that they had done and taught. This is a good thing. Uh, it says that in verse 30, that they had a very simple message namely, we saw in Mark 6, verse 12, that they were to call people to repent. And, of course, you know, they, they, so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. And, of course, the people listening to them would say, repent from what? They would want to know. Uh, and they don't, they'd probably also want to understand the word repent. Um, the word repent, metanoein, in this form metanousin, because it's plural, means to turn around from something. So you're going in one direction, and then you turn around and go the other direction. So the word repent refers to turning around from a path that leads you to sin, and then following the path that leads you to virtue and holiness. It leads you away from hell towards heaven. You turn around from the path that would be directed by Satan to the path that the Lord directs you to. This is the, the turning around. And, you know, the, the thing that they would also have to explain to their listeners is what exactly is the better alternative. Telling people to repent without letting them know the better place you're going to is, makes little sense. It's like you see in a, a dog. Uh, we had dogs when I was growing up, and I love dogs. They're, they're great. Uh, but if you have a dog with an old bone, you know, because dogs love to choose a bone, if you try to take that old bone from the dog, say, oh, dog, that is a nasty old bone. Give me that. He will growl, 
and maybe nip are you trying to take because that's his bone. But if you take a piece of fresh steak and you hold that in front of the dog, that dog will open his mouth and drop the bone without you saying a thing. This is the way people are in a certain sense because sin is like a nasty old bone. There's not much to it, but this is all I've got. And a lot of people don't want to let go of that nasty old bone. They want to hang on to their sin. And part of getting people to repent is to say, look at the misery your sin causes you. And here is the option to go to heaven. Instead of using various drugs to find some sort of temporary peace of mind, followed by hangovers and even worse results from using drugs. Sometimes the threat of death. I mean, we're losing well over 100,000 people to fentanyl poisoning every year. And to say, here's the risk of being poisoned by your drug dealer with all of this fentanyl being brought from China to Mexico across our border. And here is a chance to find peace that comes from knowing the meaning of life, the purpose of life, where you're headed towards God, an eternal life with God. This is to hold up that stake, as well as to say this path that you're taking with drugs is a path that is already a foretaste of hell. Let go of that which is leading to to hell and is already giving you a taste of hell. And here, follow what God is giving you. This is part of the issue of repentance and the alternative. And the apostles, when they come back, tell our Lord everything they had said. They needed to review, said, Lord, is this what you wanted us to teach? Is this the message you wanted us to give to these people? And this is something they do privately. Our Lord spoke privately to the apostles about the teachings a number of times. Back in Mark chapter 4, verse 34, he explained the parables privately because they didn't understand. We also see in um, Mark 9, 28, 13, 3, for instance, when he's explaining the future destruction of Jerusalem, and the end of the world. He does that to them privately. Uh, and Matthew 17, 43 is some of the same uh, kind of pattern, uh, same places, Matthew 24, verse 3, uh, number of places. He teaches them privately. Now, one of the things that we can also take a look at, and that's, how to understand the death of John the Baptist in terms of this return. First, remember that in Matthew chapter 4, 
verse 12 to 17, we see that John, John's arrest was a signal for Jesus to begin his public ministry. Let's take a look at that passage. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He'd been down in Judea um, you know, right at the time of the baptism. So he, he withdrew to uh, Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So it would have been spoken to the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, so our Lord is walking uh, the, the, the territory of Naphtali, and of uh, Zebulun are a couple of valleys that you walk through as you walk from Nazareth to Capernaum, you go across those two valleys. And they're very fertile. They're uh, volcanic soil and lots of grain fields across those two valleys. And so he's fulfilling that prophecy. And that from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So as St. John was arrested, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus understand, uh, understood very well that now that John was martyred, he was just martyred, that this is going to be a lesson for the apostles as they go out. John is martyred. Now the apostles go out and preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see, first of all, that John died as a martyr, just like Jesus would die as a martyr. And he prefigures what would eventually happen to the apostles themselves. John had preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached it, and the apostles preached it. And all of them who preached repentance still had the dogs turn on them. Some of the dogs wanted to hang on to their bones of sin, and they won't turn and repent from sin and seek heaven. And they turn against John, Jesus, and later on the apostles. And this is very much an important part of everybody's mission. The mission to proclaim the gospel evokes enmity. I just saw another story on the news. Again, there is a pattern of Catholic churches being attacked. We've seen synagogues be attacked and that out of anti-Semitism. And I said a few years ago, as that started, that if they're going to attack synagogues now, you watch and wait, they will attack churches. Sure enough, they are on a regular basis. Churches are being desecrated, statues broken, 
the Blessed Sacrament desecrated. All this is going on because the forces in favor of abortion are, will not repent of their desire to kill children in the womb. They won't turn around from that. They're committed to it. And they won't support life. And so they attack churches. This is part of the history, and this is relatively small compared to the martyrdoms that are going on in Africa. Just last week, a priest was burned to death for preaching the gospel. This is the kind of thing that goes on. So we should not be surprised. That's why this is placed together. St. Mark, who belonged to the church at Rome, that was about to experience persecution under Nero. He understood the meaning of this, and the church has understood the meaning of the enmity of sinners over the centuries. Seventy-five million Christians have been martyred over the last 2,000 years, and 40 million of them have been martyred by the, in the last century. More than half of all Christian martyrs were martyred in the last 100 years by atheistic governments, particularly. So don't be surprised that atheists are not neutral. They will demand that we be neutral and accept them. But once they have enough power, they will come after us and try to destroy us. This is something we should expect. So this uh, is what is being pointed out here. Then finally, we see that St. Mark also adds here that on the other hand, the people who do repent, the people who are looking for that heavenly treasure, for that reward in heaven, so many were coming to Jesus and going. They had no time to rest or even to eat their dinner. So our Lord was concerned about them being exhausted and what we would call today being burned out. Um, because there are people who are hungry for the truth of Christ. There are those who hate the truth of Christ and those who are hungry for it. This is the reality of life. This is why our Lord was prophesied to be one who would be for the rise and the fall of many. So this is very important because not everybody, you know, goes ahead and hates the gospel. Remember, Simeon had said this in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. When Simeon blessed Mary and, and Jesus and said, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. This is a key theme for the gospel. And it highlights what Jesus did. So in the face of this, you know, we, we have to uh, try to imagine. We should speak to Jesus. After praying over this passage, imagine yourself standing with Jesus. Speak to him. What has your mission in life been like so far as parents, grandparents, teachers, whatever else that you're doing? And speak to him about the ways that you 
inform people about the gospel? How have you told the truth of the gospel to the people around you, not only in your family, but outside? How have you described the gospel of Jesus? How do you explain it to people? To explain your own faith and, and let them know about it. What questions do you hear from people about our faith? And how do you respond to it? And how satisfied are people with the answers you give? And then imagine our Lord speaking to you. What would he say to you about the ways you call sinners to repent and believe in the kingdom of God? Ask him what he would like you to do differently. What would he say to you about what you're doing? And then just conclude with the prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. Pray that prayer. And this would be a very, very powerful way to reflect and how you, like the apostles, are sent out to preach the gospel in season and out. We'll take a break now and come back with a meditation about our Lord trying to get the apostles away from the crowd, so please stay with us. Welcome back. First of all, I want to remind you something I mentioned earlier. Uh, Father Miguel Marie of the Friars here at EWTN, Franciscan Friars, is leading a pilgrimage to Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, and Switzerland. And there are lots of wonderful Catholic places to go visit there. So he's doing that May 25th to June 5th of this year, 2023. If you want more information, go to visitationpilgrimages.com, visitationpilgrimages.com, or you can call them. And the number is 256-347-1475, 256-347-1475. All right, now we're going to take, uh, again, our Lord saw the problem of the apostles needing to get a, a break, a rest. So we see here, we're going to look at the version of this in Matthew chapter 14, in verses 12 to 14. And it says there that John's disciples came and took the body of John, that is, and they, John the Baptist, and they went and told Jesus, now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. But when the crowds heard it, 
they followed him on foot from the towns. And as he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them and cured their sick. Okay? So, um, in St. Matthew's version, it mentions that John's disciples, who, by the way, John's disciples are mentioned in all four Gospels. They're, they're there everywhere. Okay? So this was um, very, very important. And they buried John's body, and then they um, went and tell Jesus. And again, I already mentioned how John's arrest had been a signal for Jesus to begin his public ministry in Galilee. We saw that in just a couple of moments ago in Matthew 4, 12 to 17. Now, John's execution is a signal for Jesus to go to a lonely uh, place apart from the crowds to pray. Think about the way that we saw this already in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, where it said, in the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Our Lord would go away from the crowds to pray and reflect, asking his Father, what do you want me to do next? And then when, they, when the apostles found him, they were looking for him, in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, it said, Jesus responds to them, said, let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. So he, is, he knew while he was praying that he needed to you know, expand his mission from Capernaum to the rest of Galilee. Here, we see in Matthew 14, again, he's going to a quiet place to pray and to have some time to listen to what the Father wants to do and spend, just spend time with his Father. This is a model for us to understand what we need to do. Okay? The problem is when you, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee is a lake. It's 12 miles uh, north to south, and seven miles at the widest place from east to west. So the crowd saw him get into a boat. You can't hide the boat. You know, if you're standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you can watch the boats move. And so they walk to where he was saying. He would have gotten there ahead of them, most likely, but they would be following him uh, in the boat. And they go to a lonely place. Now, today, that place is given the Arab, Arabic name Tabra. Tabra. This is the, the uh, comes from a difficulty that Arabs have in saying certain sounds. Just like we have trouble saying some of the Arabic sounds, like the the letter Ghayn. Ghayn is not an easy letter to learn how to say. But they, they say it all the time. Whereas in Arabic, they don't have the letter P. The original name of this place was 
heptaptagron. That's got two P's in there with a T after one of them. So heptaptagron means seven uh, uh, springs, of, springs of water. And so they couldn't say it, so they just called it tabukha. And that's what it's known as today. And, you know, we see that it's uh, from John's gospel that it's very well watered. That's why th there's seven springs there. And some of them, you still see the water flowing. Um, they come from underground. Uh, there's a lot of vol volcanic uh, activity in the area. And lots of springs of water, you know, come from the aquifers below. And they flow into the Sea of Galilee. And this uh, is also a place where if you go there, uh, on one part of the property that's now owned by the Franciscans, you can also see where there's part of an old harbor, a place where the fishing boats could come. It goes back to the first century. And another part, which is owned by the Benedictines, they have the remnants of a church. And if you see on your screen, there is a very ancient mosaic of two fish and a basket of loaves. That's one of the most famous uh, mosaics in the whole country of Israel. Um, it, it's uh, at this church of the multiplication of loaves and fish. <laughs> I love I love the German name. These are German Benedictines. And the German name for the church is one word. The Brotvermehrungskirche. <laughs> it means multiplication of Lowe's church. But it's, a, it's just a great long German word. Brotvermehrungskirche. I love it. And so uh, it's, a cool, it's a wonderful place. It's a beautiful place. Uh, in fact, you can spend the night there. They have a, a hostel, a retreat place uh, to go to. And here the sick that are following, probably with the help of other people, they wouldn't have been able to do it themselves, but all the people are carrying the sick and picking them up by the shoulder and sometimes putting them on pallets and bringing so that when our Lord sees not only the sick who are seeking healing, but also their friends and relatives that are working so hard to carry these people to the place where his boat lands, you can see why he felt compassion. Even though he was tired and the apostles were tired, he feels this strong sense of compassion. And so... Here we see that people do what they are able to do. They could bring their sick, but they couldn't heal them. Jesus responds by doing what only God could do, namely to heal them by his word. This is something that we see here, and people are healed by his divine power. Now, this is a pattern that a lot of times our Lord's plans are changed as people come to him seeking a miracle. His plan was to go and rest. But when they come asking for healing, he changes his plan 
and he heals the sick. This is not at all unlike our Lord at Cana, that his blessed mother informed him that the people had run out of wine at the wedding feast. And he brought up the issue, this is not yet my time. And his mother doesn't argue with him. She simply tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. So he'll make the decision, but she had brought this problem up. And it wasn't his time, but he responds to her concern. He shows compassion because she had shown compassion. And one of the things that uh, we can uh, keep in mind that Jesus, our Lord, may not have planned to do some miracles, but we can come to him and we see that our simple love for Jesus, our trust in him, evokes an infinite love from him. And any of you who are parents know this. If your child comes and says, Mommy, I'm really hungry, even though it's in between meals, and you can tell when they're just trying to get a cookie because they want something sweet versus when they really feel hungry. You pay close attention to them. You know your children's hearts and habits. And you would respond to them with great love. They love you and trust you to take care of their hunger pains. And you love them even more than they love you. Our Lord is the same way. And that's why he responds. And this is something for us to consider. You know, when we pray about this. First, if we come to Jesus with demands, or if we come with a demand and present it arrogantly, or with an attitude of entitlement, then you're probably not going to win his compassion. You know, just like your kids say, Mommy, you got to give me some ice cream. Hmm. My parents never felt that need at those moments I was being demanding. And it might be that I needed a lesson about not being so demanding and especially for something that's just what I want. This is something that all of us need to pay attention to. And on the other hand, our Lord does cherish the humble confidence that we place in Him. He cherishes that. And when we seek Him with our attention focused on Him, this is something that He loves and cherishes and takes that very preciously. So imagine that you are part of the crowd that followed his boat and that you walked along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and you come to the place where it landed. What would you be seeking from Jesus? What would you seek from him? And what would be the most important concern you would like to set before our Lord? And, you know, Picture yourself on that lonely place in the Sea of Galilee. 
as he looks to you with compassion, what would his face look like? What would that seem like to you? What would there be in Jesus' face that would evoke confidence in presenting him your needs? What would that be? And speak to him about your need and his compassion, his mercy. And again, clued with the prayer, Sola Christ, save me. This would be a good way to pray over this simple passage and place ourselves in it and see our lives in this context. Okay? All right. Now, I'm going to go to some of your questions. Uh, I'm going to start off with Melinda in Missouri. Hello, Melinda. Hi, Father. Hi. What can we do for you today? I have two older sisters that are gay, mm -hmm. and they stopped going to church around four years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the priest there where they were going to their church said that it was a sin. And then one of my sisters told me a couple years ago that they follow a Father James Martin, who is a Jesuit, mm -hmm. like I believe you are. Yes. And he said that he is for, and Jesus is for, gay marriage. My sisters are thinking about getting married to their partners. Mm -hmm. My parents are deceased, and I'm the baby of the family, and I'm worried about their souls. And they sure. barely speak to me, and they have not gone to church. Yeah. I go to church every week. I say the rosary for them, that nothing changes their mind. And they get very upset with me when I tell them that James Martin is a false prophet, and they, they say, I was made this way. And I said, no, I'm sorry you have that burden, but you can mm -hmm. overcome it. Being gay isn't a sin, as if you act upon it, is what Mother Angelica always told us. So mm -hmm. I just need some help because you were talking about repentance, and I don't know what to do, and I'm scared for my two sisters. Here's one, a couple things. First of all, you know, ask our Lord, to help you overcome that fear because being afraid will not help you think clearly about the situation. It, it put, you know, in, in, in fact, it can lead to you being manipulated. You know, that when we're afraid that, well, they might not like me, they might reject me, and lots of other things. And in this case, you you're fear, uh, have fear about you know, their immortal souls. Um, don't, don't act on the fear. Instead, keep yourself focused on the person of Christ. This passage would be a good one, you know, just to recognize that he, if you feel this concern and compassion for your sisters. You ought to be absolutely confident that our Lord has even more compassion, infinitely more compassion for them. So try to not let fear guide you. The temptation will be there, but fight against that temptation to fear by Focusing on the person of Christ. Okay? That's one thing. And then the um, other issue 
is, you know, Father, I don't know what Father Martin is thinking because, you know, I know that he's uh, fairly close to uh, Pope Francis, but Pope Francis has made it absolutely clear that gay marriage is not marriage. I know the Pope has written that, and Father Martin is going flat against that, not only the teaching of this Pope, but the teaching of the church over the centuries. And, you know, um, th this is something that is not part of it. It may be a, a, a theological opinion that he holds, but it's not the teaching of the present Pope or any of his predecessors. So that's just not the case. And this is something where, you know, their love for each other is something that you want to encourage. You want them to love each other. But there's going to be this, you know, sexual expression of that that is contrary to the nature of matrimony. Now, what you have to do is very much put them, as a matter of fact, I would strongly urge that you focus on the sacred heart of Jesus and the way our Lord Jesus, his heart is that, as St. Margaret Mary had, uh, Alacoque had said, an infinite furnace of divine love is burning with love for your sisters. Focus on that and let that be the source of strength that you have. And the other thing, last thing, I'm going to recommend a, a book uh, written by Dale O'Leary. It's a wonderful book. It's basically a compilation with some reflection on lots and lots of sociological studies that are actually quite helpful here. And her book is called One Man, One Woman. I'm pretty sure it's in our religious catalog. She's been a guest here at EWTN. And her book is very helpful. Uh, and I know that um, Johnette Benkovich has addressed some of these issues on Women of Grace. We want to look at some of her past programs and get insights from folks who have been where your sisters are and have come to a sense of, you know, finding that a healing of their own anger. Anger is a big issue, a big issue. And O'Leary brings that out in the studies and so also do people report on it themselves. That would be useful for you to take a look at and pray over to give you insight on how you can love them in Christ and be the instrument, despite their resistance and anger, the instrument to help them be reconciled with Christ and the church. Okay? All right, I have to take a little break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes with more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us.
right, uh, welcome back. And just want to invite you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night, Wednesday, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And we will be speaking with Alex Jones and Alessandro DeSanto. They are co-founders of the Halo app. This is a chance for us to discuss the most downloaded Catholic meditation, prayer, and sleep app. Wait a minute, are they sleeping during their prayer? No, no. Anyway, it's, you can get it in the App Store. It provides a simple, easy-to-use mobile app that helps people to foster a relationship with God and find peace through guided prayer and meditation. So that'd be good. Though it reminds me of the brothers when I was a novice. The brothers worked on the farm that we had at the novitiate, uh, you know, taking care of the animals and the crops and such. And when they would come in for their five o'clock meditation period, um, <laughs> they oftentimes were so tired they would just fall asleep. So they would call it meditating on the apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> All right, we have a caller online. Deborah in Pennsylvania, what can we do for you? Hi, Father Mitch. I was wondering, in Genesis 38.8, uh, Judah mm -hmm. tells his son to take his brother's wife and raise up children to his brother. Right. In, Levitic, in Leviticus, God says, don't, you don't lie with your brother's wife. And, of course, that's what John got in trouble with Herod for. Yes. I don't believe that there are, con that there are um, contradictions in the no. Bible. No. So could you address this seeming sure. contradiction? Do you remember the condition of Onan's brother? Uh, when, he was sure told, when Onan asking. was told to marry his brother's wife, what was the brother's condition? Oh, the brother was dead. Yes. So at that point, when a man dies and leaves a widow with no children, see, that was the other part of it. He had no children. The problem would be to have children who could inherit the dead brother's property. So this is called the Leverate Law. A Levir is a brother-in-law, okay? So the brother of the dead man would marry his sister-in-law if she had no children. And then the children would at legally, physically they belong to the brother who's alive, but legally they were considered the children of the dead brother. That was the Leverate Law. And that's what they recommended in Genesis and there are other passages in Deuteronomy about that. Whereas in Leviticus, it's the brother is still alive. And that was the case with Herod and Herodias. A, she had at least one child by her first husband, Philip. So the Leverate law would not apply to her. Two, her first husband was still alive. 
and in fact, he outlasted Herod uh, Antipas. So that's the difference. Does that help? Yeah, Melinda, I guess she's gone. All right, so that, that's what's going on there. All right, we have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Alaska. Eagle cool. River, Alaska. Eagle River, Alaska. Yes, if any of you get a chance to go to Alaska, go. It's a beautiful place. Really stunning, stunningly beautiful. So what can we do for you? I hope it's beautiful where you live. I it assume is. So. Yeah, absolutely. So what can we do for you today? Sure. Um, you mentioned abortion, um, the persecution of Christians, Catholics, um, and we're asked to respond to that with charity. Mm -hmm. um, now, as an Alaskan guy, my first uh, uh, instinct is to just fight back and, and uh, probably yep. wouldn't be very charitable. But, no. uh, so, but what, what does that look like? What is, how do we respond with charity to this evil sure. of abortion sure. and the uh, evil of persecution? There's, you know, charity does not mean wimpiness, okay? We have to be strong on this because our opposition has a very, very mean streak to it. I mean, if you are willing to promote taking a knife to cutting off the limbs of a baby, that's what abortion does. And I, I've watched an ultrasound of an abortion, and it's horrendous to see a little baby punching at the knife and kicking at it and then get his limbs cut off and his head crushed. People who want to promote that have a pretty mean streak in them. But we can also see where there is a way that we can find compassion also for the people who feel the stress of an unwanted pregnancy. We can still have compassion for them. Matter of fact, we should have compassion for them. You know, whether it's a woman who uh, didn't intend to get pregnant in that relationship or whether someone in a few cases, that's not very often, but it happens, that someone is forced and they, they, they get pregnant after a rape or something. Um, this is, we have to show compassion for that kind of situation, but help them to extend the compassion we feel for them, extend the compassion to the baby so that your compassion for the woman undergoing that stress does not exclude the baby from the compassion either. And that's part of the task. Now, for the folks who are mean, we have to stand up strongly. And we have to do, up in Alaska, musk oxen, pretty tough breed. When there's a wolf that comes against the calves, the musk oxen form a circle with their heads out and the calves in the center. Wolves don't come close. That's the way we have to be with these folks too. Strong, protective, but at the same time compassionate, okay? 
Well, just in a few minutes, I have, I want to mention that I uh, got an email that's appropriate for tomorrow, the Feast of the Conversion of Paul. In Acts 9, 7, it says that the men who were with Paul on the road to Damascus heard the voice but saw no one. But in Acts 22, 9, Paul says that those who were with him saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking. Why the contradiction? One of the problems is that the Greek word phoni, just like the Hebrew word kol and just the, the Arabic words sot, means voice and it means sound. So it's talking about how they could, in chapter 9, they hear the sound, but not distinct words. Those are addressed to Paul. While in the other passage, they don't hear the voice of the one speaking. It also brings out they don't understand the words. They hear a sound, but not the words. That's what's going on there. And part of it is just understanding that voice and sound is, happens to be the same word in Greek, Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, and other languages. That's all. All right. We have to end. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and direct you in all your ways by his peace. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, this network is brought to you by you, so please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we will be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you, and thank you. Mm -hmm.